This is The Feed, York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. This is The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. On the show, a new early detection scan for cancer, finding happiness at work, and a 13-year-old YouTube star shares his love of books. But we begin with Health Canada last week approving the first of several updated COVID vaccines aimed at protecting individuals aged six months and older from new strains of the virus making their way into where we live, work, and play. The voice of public health for York Region, Medical Officer of Health Dr. Barry Pecos is our guest on the feed. Thank you, Dr. Pecos, for joining us. Good to have you with us on the show. Thank you for having me. So let's begin with the new updated COVID vaccines, and we've got others waiting in the wings. What's the purpose of them, and how important is it to our health this fall? So the updated vaccines are uh, the Pfizer and, and Novavax coming first, uh, or will be approved probably shortly, are just updates to, um, to make sure that the vaccines are appropriate for the Omicron variant. They're appropriate for the XBB variant. Um, there's, there's reasonably good evidence that it's a, a bit of a better match for those spike proteins that we always used to talk about that will, uh, are really essential for protecting us from the, from the virus. And, and they are really important this season. Uh, you know, like many seasons past, COVID is still around. There are new variants, uh, variants of interest, not variants of concern. So, you know, we're not overly worried about severity. We're not overly worried about um, immune escape or um, for most people getting sick. But it really still is a significant risk for people, particularly those who are older, who have medical conditions. So for those people in particular, it is very important for them to get an updated booster. And for the general population, you know, it's, it's reasonable for for everyone who's interested to get protection and you mentioned that if they're interested so there are still people out there who have refused from right from the get-go to have a vaccine is this something that concerns you when it comes to the citizens of york region those who will not be vaccinated so you know at this point it's a little bit less of a concern you know first of all those are very few uh, and far between, right? Less than uh, 10% of the population, really, or, or just about 10%. And most of our population has been fully vaccinated with two doses, and a, a large proportion have been vaccinated with three. And many people, um, even such as myself, you know, five or six or healthcare workers, certainly, and older people, you know, many doses. And those people who haven't been vaccinated almost certainly. Uh, unless they've been, you know, completely living in a bubble for three or plus years, have had COVID, and, and many of them had COVID a couple of times. So really this season, the difference is that we're talking about the vaccine to protect us as individuals. And in previous seasons, certainly the first few, we were talking about everybody has to get one in order to decrease the burden of COVID overall in our community to protect everybody. And right now it, it is more of an individual choice where you're really looking to protect yourself from hospitalization or death if you're in higher risk and to protect loved ones and yourself if you are not particularly at high risk yourself but are around others. So, you know, it's a bit of a different framing this year, but just as important. And, of course, we're not only talking about COVID vaccines. This year, like like all previous years, we've got the flu vaccine, and, and we know from the southern hemisphere that the flu season is likely to be early and, and you know, modestly severe, so it's important to get both COVID and flu vaccine. And this year we also have... Uh, the RSV vaccine for those who are at much higher risk, uh, particularly those who are in long-term care. And that's a new vaccine, not generally available to most of the population, but going to be important for protecting those in long-term care facilities. So, Dr. Pecos, a lot of uh, people in authority, and that would be you, York Region Public Health, uh, and other uh, doctors and health officials are suggesting that the flu and the COVID vaccine be administered at the same time. How does that work and why does that work? So, uh, you know, it, it, it's almost always to give multiple vaccines at the same time. We certainly do that among children and adults. And, and you know, your body is responding to many, many different issues all the time. So, you know, two new ones that are delivered by the, by the vaccine, it's not, you know, going to overwhelm your immune system in any way, shape, or form. And, in fact, in many ways enhances it. Uh, of note, the, the vaccine and the COVID vaccine are different kinds of vaccine, as, as everyone will remember, the, the COVID vaccine, at least the Moderna and Pfizer uh, versions, are mRNA vaccines, and they work in a bit of a different way. And the flu vaccine is similar to the ones that we've received in the past, which uh, stimulates the immune system in, in the same way that it has in the past through, through giving us a little bit of the proteins that are on the surface 
um, of those of the flu bugs, and and it's always matched uh, every year to a new uh, influenza strain. And the good news is actually from again from the southern hemisphere, we know that the flu vaccine that we're giving this year is actually very well matched, 98, 99 percent matched wow. to what we're expecting this season, and it provides good protection against hospitalization as well. So you know, for those at higher risk as well as general risk in the in the community, both of these vaccines are, are definitely a good idea as well. It's my understanding that York Region Public Health will be opening influenza and COVID-19 clinics potentially as early as Tuesday, October the 3rd to higher risk individuals. Now, you've talked about higher risk individuals, but who are they? What 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 makes the difference between higher risk and, and the general population? So, you know, there, there are many things that make people uh, higher risk. And, and by this point, actually, many people in the population know you know, who they are and, and when they're at high risk because we've been through this a few times before, but it really is primarily age. So we're going to be opening this up to people who are seniors and people with immunocompromising conditions, any kinds of comorbidities, diabetes, you know, heart disease, respiratory or breathing difficulties, um, and people who are on medications that make them more susceptible. And, and nowadays there are lots of people, almost 10 to 15% of the population, who are on medications that make them a little bit more susceptible to both getting infected and and getting severely ill. So those are people who we're going to be opening up to, you know, right away. And of course, we're going to be in long-term care facilities and congregate facilities delivering those vaccines directly to individuals in those facilities, because as we know, they're a very significant risk. Um, and then very quickly afterwards, hopefully within a couple of weeks, we're going to open it up to everybody. And individuals who identify as First Nation, Inuit, or Métis, members of other yeah. equity-deserving or racialized communities, even children aged six months to five years will be prioritized as high risk based on their increased risk of severe outcomes from the flu or COVID-19 or both. Yes, that's that's right. And those groups, you know, I, I don't often mention them because those folks uh, often know they're included. And to be honest, you're not going to be you know, discriminating against people, uh, you know, if they self-identify as from a high-risk group, then we're certainly going to be delivering it from, uh, to them. Uh, but definitely all of those groups most certainly um, are included in, in higher risk. And, and I think it's important to distinguish between the higher individual risk versus a higher community risk. But, but either way, um, those who, who want to get these vaccines um, will be delivered, you know, we will certainly deliver to them. And, and I think it's important, one little, you know, distinction there is that among those children, six months to five years, it's important to note that those kids are, are at higher risk of, of, of bad outcomes from flu, but not necessarily uh, at higher risk for bad outcomes from COVID. So, you know, that, that may be missed in some of the messaging that is important for those kids. In fact, we saw in the Southern Hemisphere again that, that children were actually more likely to, to uh, become severely ill than, than many other groups. And so that, that piece is a really important distinction as well. And where does RSV factor into all of this? It made headlines last year, right through the winter, and it was pretty hard on a whole lot of people. What are we looking at this fall in terms of people affected by RSV? Right. So RSV is a really important virus, and we've seen it in a, in a couple of cycles now uh, as COVID waned and we opened things up. In particular, RSV was very severe among very young children. I myself, uh, working clinically, saw a number of those very young kids, and it's you know, very difficult to, you know, to, to, to put those kids in hospital and in some cases intubate them with a, a tube down the throat. So the the, the risk to very small children um, is there, there are a couple of new um, medications out there that, you know, specialized centers are going to be using, particularly for kids are at highest risk. But what we're talking about with the new RSV vaccine is really just for the older population. Um, so those who are over 65, but in particular, those who are in long-term care facilities. So those are available for private purchase at pharmacies now. The, the GSK product for RSV is, is out in Canada, and there's a couple of other ones in the States. But the publicly funded program is going to target those who are most at risk, which is those in long-term care facilities. And, you know, between flu, COVID, and RSV, that gets a, a big chunk of, of, of the illness that causes people to go into hospital and become very ill. So, you know, we're very optimistic that, that this year we'll be able to have a, a you know, a well-vaccinated year and therefore a healthier year because we still do have really, you know, significant numbers of people 
um, in the hospital with these infections. You know, we still have a good 500 people in Ontario hospitals across all hospitals in Ontario and, and uh, you know, well into double digits, almost 20 in, in York Region. And, you know, while that may seem like low numbers compared to what they were at the worst of the pandemic, you know, we need every bed in every hospital. And, and more importantly than that, we want every person to be healthy. And the best way to do that is to prevent illness in the first place. And another way to prevent illness is to wear a mask. And a lot of people are reluctant to don those masks again. What is York Region Public Health's policy when it comes to mask wearing at this point or suggestion? Yeah, so I mean, mask wearing is just a, an absolutely proven way of preventing yourself from infecting others and from you getting infected. And you know, a medical mask and, and you know, certainly N95 masks. We've had lots of discussions about those, but a regular medical mask that that everyone has been using for many years now is very effective. And and we know that to be the case. Uh, before COVID, but now certainly reinforced with everyone. And it is an individual choice at this point. Um, you know, there aren't mandates uh, generally, and, and we don't have any intention as far as we know now, as far as things are going now, to enforce any mandates or even suggest them. We know that in, in clinical situations, in, in hospitals certainly, um, there there are policies in, in requiring healthcare providers and patients in many cases um, to wear masks, and, and they were restricted just to those clinical areas, and many hospitals have expanded them to the waiting areas and other parts of the hospital. And, you know, as the fall progresses, we may see that, you know, on an individual basis increase. It, you know, it certainly is a good idea um, to, to wear a mask if you're in a, a very closed setting. You know, in the fall now, you know, if you're in a room with, with 10 or, or in a subway or, or a bus or, or just any, you know, crowded uh, workplace even, you know, it, it is not unreasonable that you'd be exposed to, whether it's COVID, flu, RSV, or dozens of other uh, viruses or even some bacteria, a mask will protect you. Dr. Barry Pecos, you've been with York Region Public Health since, I believe, 2020. So that was right at the very beginning of the pandemic. And you're now at a different uh, level with YRPH. You are the Medical Officer of Health. So you've seen it all. You've seen this entire pandemic unfold in York Region. What are your thoughts about it now as we enter the fall of 2023 with COVID, not really in the rearview mirror, but certainly with its seatbelt on and better contained? Well, we certainly have learned a lot, and and not only learned a lot sort of anecdotally and reflecting on things, but we've done a lot of work at York Region Public Health to actually gather all of those lessons learned from the many phases of the pandemic, because we've learned different things at different times, and we've got after-action reviews, we've got all kinds of strategic priorities that we're uh, acting upon to prepare for the next pandemic and to take those learnings and apply them to our everyday activities. So, you know, we're doing more things in the virtual space, we're making things more accessible and available uh, to folks. Um, but in terms of, of COVID itself, we've even uh, reintegrated. We had a separate COVID unit, and we've just, uh, over this past spring, summer, and now into the fall, reintegrated that COVID work into our usual communicable disease activities. So we certainly have learned a lot. We've learned a lot about prevention. So our, our health protection teams are, are going in and making sure that those long-term care facilities are prepared for the season also. Um, and we're just in a, in a continuous learning mode. So, it's, you know, it's been a very difficult time, but I think, uh, you know, we're, um, we're better for it now. And actually, we've, we've recently just had a, a public health all-staff day where everybody in public health got together again and was able to see each other in person and engage with many of the teams they worked with in COVID and, you know, very positive and hopeful atmosphere for the fall. Wow. Bravo, Dr. Barry Pecos and Team York Region Public Health. Thank you right now for joining us on the feed. Much appreciated. Thank you. Have a great day. For more information, please go to york.ca slash COVID-19 vaccines or york.ca slash flu. Coming up on the feed, Project Hug for New Moms. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. Southlake Regional Health Centre unveiled a new multi-million dollar state-of-the-art piece of equipment this week that will help in the detection of cancer. Glenn Perkins has that story. 
It's called a PET-CT scanner, and it will be able to scan as many as 12 patients a day once it is fully operational. Laurie Reynolds is the director of Central Regional Cancer Programs at Southlake Regional Health Center. I asked her, how does it work? The PET-CT uses nuclear medicine to detect change within cells at a metabolic level, allowing for earlier cancer diagnosis. With this revolutionary technology and detailed insight, Southlake will be able to deliver tailor-made cancer treatments to patients. What does this mean for patients? One great benefit, it does allow for earlier detection of cancer, and it can determine whether cancer treatments have worked or if the cancer has spread. And then this machine also serves as a CT simulator, which is used for treatment planning of radiotherapy for patients. With this as well, this new advanced equipment will improve cancer care by serving 1,200 patients annually once operating at full capacity. Will this also help relieve some of the stress patients diagnosed with cancer and their families go through now that they no longer need to leave the region for treatment at other hospitals? That's absolutely correct. Patients will now be able to get this advanced level of cancer care treatment closer to home right here at Southlake. And that's important, isn't it, that they'll be able to do that at home with everything else that they're going through? Definitely. This machine will make a big difference in the lives of our patients who will no longer need to travel outside of York Region to access this service. They used to go down to a few of the Toronto hospitals, so they would have to travel down to the Toronto area. But with this new piece of equipment, the PET-CT here, it means that 100% of our patients in the central region requiring the PET that previously needed to travel outside uh, of the region can now get this care closer to home here at uh, Southlake. And I know that's going to be a big relief for them. Absolutely. Yes, that's quite a day to be traveling down outside of your region. A campaign was launched to raise money for the PET-CT scanner. First of all, how much does a piece of equipment like this cost? It's about $21 million. And with our cancer campaign here, we have a $20 million campaign goal, and we've currently raised just over $12 million. So with this campaign, it really has worked towards bringing this first-ever PET-CT scanner to York Region. You also received funding from the provincial government? We certainly did. We see $2.8 million from the provincial government and then more than $12 million in fundraising for the campaign that includes support for the PET-CT. As we know, cancer touches so many lives. Is this one more step forward in the fight? Absolutely. It's definitely always one step forward, but this is a, a particularly exceptional piece of equipment that will definitely benefit Southlake's cancer program, our diagnostic imaging as well, to help serve an additional 1,200 patients annually once we've got it operating at full capacity. Southlake keeps moving forward, doesn't it, in all areas of healthcare for the residents of York Region? Definitely, yes. As the, the regional uh, cancer centre here as the hub, uh, we're you know very proud of the programs that we promote and the, our cancer program really bringing our Uh, exceptional cancer care close to home. Laurie Reynolds, Director of Central Regional Cancer Programs at Southlake Regional Health Centre, thank you for joining us on the feed. Thank you so much. This is 105.9 The Region. Well, the first few days after delivery can be really tough on new mums. Shaliza Backus with a new program to help fill the gap in support. Being a new parent is always scary, and as time goes on, there seem to be even more factors to consider, leaving new parents with little support, especially for moms. Joining me to talk about this is Carrie Bruno, registered nurse, lactation consultant, and founder of The Mama Coach. How are you, Carrie? I'm well. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining me. Now, I think the pandemic has taught us a lot. And I think now that we're kind of post-pandemic, we are starting to see that new parents, I feel, are struggling now more than ever. I I would agree with that. There is research out there that says 95% of new moms wish they had more access to support. And what types of support are we talking about? I call having a newborn a team sport. And I think it's because until you bring home this baby, 
it, it's really hard to be aware of all the moving parts involved. And the reality is, is that when a baby is born, so is a mom. And she has needs too, but she's so focused on caring for this new baby, rightfully so, that her basic needs are sometimes going to the wayside. So that's why there needs to be that support system in place that cares for mom, baby, and the entire family unit. Definitely, definitely. And I feel like we probably hear this a lot from our moms now that we're adults. It's like, back in my day, it was so different. We only got like a three-month maternity leave or six weeks or whatever the case is. And I feel like there is a definite generational gap because I feel like older mothers who now have adult children are like, well, what are they complaining about? They have a year of mat leave. Yeah, I agree. And I also think that the world has shifted and expectation has shifted. And not saying that they didn't do a great job raising us, but I, I do think that it's it's different. And the expectation of women to parent and work or or do whatever it is, it's it's just a heavy load. And often leading through their pregnancy, they're working right until the moment they have the baby. They haven't had a lot of time to put those support systems in place, even though they desperately need them. Definitely, definitely. And how do you feel like people in their circles or their support system, be it their partners, their parents, their siblings, whatever the case is, how can they help a little bit more? I think it goes back to thinking about that statement that when a baby is born, so is a mom and, and that diet needs to be cared for. So of course, helping with that baby. So skin to skin, you know, we often think about mom and baby doing skin to skin and the benefits of that. But the reality is, is that um, there's many benefits when a partner does skin to skin or another caregiver so that mom can rest. And that's really beneficial for babe too. And then also just identifying mom's needs. So I think we've normalized how sleep deprivation is just a part of parenthood. And yeah, to some extent, that's true. Newborns wake in the night and that's very normal, but it also needs to be addressed in the sense that it's still a basic need. We need to sleep to be well. And so who can help mom get some rest? What would that look like? Definitely. And tell us a little bit about Project Hug. Is this aiming to give moms the support that they need? Yes, I'm so, so excited about it. And so... I partnered with Huggies and we have developed this program. So it is based on evidence-based information, um, my experience as a maternal child nurse, and then a huge dose of empathy, knowing that what, you know, moms and babies are moving through, it's a huge transition. And so we developed a curriculum, it's five different modules, and it's given to new parents. And so it is talking about skin to skin, infant feeding, which honestly is a huge topic all on its own, infant sleep, same thing, it's so overwhelming as a new parent, Maternal mental health wellness, which needs to be addressed and talked about so that new moms don't feel that shame that can come with, you know, all of those emotional changes with having a new baby that often aren't talked about. Um, and then supports. Where are these community resources that they can access? So I'm super excited for this to get rolled out and, and in the hands of, of more new moms. And if our listeners and new moms, new parents want some more information and to take advantage of Project Hug, where can they go? So I would send them to Grow With Huggies on Instagram, or they can come over and follow me at the.mama.coach. <laughs> Love it. Carrie Bruno, thank you so much for joining me. And thank you for this insight on the support for new parents. Yeah, thanks for having me. Over now to Jim Lang with Myeloma Canada's search for a cure and fundraising campaign. A lot of people don't realize it, but myeloma is a cancer that is affecting thousands of Canadians, and it's almost a, a secret form of cancer that people need to know more about. To talk more about it and how you can help Myeloma Canada, thrilled to be speaking to Martine Elias, the Executive Director of Myeloma Canada, the only patient-driven grassroots organization bringing the Canadian myeloma community together. Martine, it's an absolute pleasure. How are you? I'm wonderful. And you? 
Fine, thank you. Uh, cancer has touched my family, like thousands of families across this country. But I was fascinated to know that more than 4,000 Canadians were diagnosed with myeloma in 2022. And it's and for that many Canadians to have it, why don't we hear more about it? Because it's still not a big cancer in terms of numbers. 4,000 is, you know, can seem significant, but there are many other cancers that, you know, have much higher diagnosis. And it is a blood cancer. It's the second most common blood cancer, but people don't think about blood cancers as they do of about lung cancer or kidney cancer or breast cancer because they're organs. People can see them. Blood is a little bit different. They don't see inside the blood. Uh, the other thing that stood out to me was the fact that it takes potentially more than three visits to adequately diagnose it. And for a lot of people... Uh, struggling to find a health care, uh, maybe are hesitant to see a doctor, that has to play a factor in victims of myeloma in this country. It does. Um, the symptoms are very vague. Uh, they start with bone pain or just fatigue or, or infection. So people don't really think about, oh, could I potentially have cancer? So they go see their their general practitioner and they do some tests. But, you know, general practitioners don't see a lot of myeloma patients. Maybe they see one, maybe two in their lifetime. So they don't think about doing more in-depth analysis and see what really is causing the symptoms of the patients. I was talking to someone yesterday from Barry who was telling me that, you know, he'd been to the doctor five times and he's still... Uh, didn't have a full diagnosis, but he suspected this could be myeloma because he's done his own research. So he was asking me, what do I do? Where do I go? How do I get a doctor to see me and get the diagnosis as soon as possible? So it is a big problem. Speaking with Martine Elias, the executive director of Myeloma Canada, and they're celebrating 15 years of walking the walk to make myeloma matter with the Multiple Myeloma March. It's a 5K Multiple Myeloma March. There's multiple marches taking place around York Region and Southern Ontario, including a big one happening in Oshawa, September 30th, as well as Mississauga, Newmark, and Brampton. Get more details at myeloma.ca or their Instagram and Facebook. And it sounds like a, a fun event, a great event to get together with others, Martine, but also to realize what you're doing when you walk and raise up money is making a significant impact. Amazing. You're absolutely right. The march are a way for the families of the patients to get together and to celebrate the new advances that have been made in myeloma. It's fun. It's five kilometers. It's not difficult. If you want to stop before you finish the five kilometers, that's okay. It's not a race. We're not you know, expecting people to finish in a certain amount of time. The idea is for people to get together. And September is beautiful in Ontario. So we want to create that environment where people can come together, have fun. There's balloons for kids. There's you know, pins. There's lunch. So it's, it's a lot of fun. And we have an amazing community of uh, volunteers that help us with these marches. And the thing that really struck me when you talk about the community, Martine, is I'm sure some families feel like they're all alone in the world when they have a loved one fighting myeloma. And to have this support group in a march like this in such a positive reinforcement, it's a feel-good day in realizing you're not alone. Absolutely. Um, You know, 4,000 patients diagnosed every year, you feel exactly alone. When you hear this word, you've got multiple myeloma. Many people don't even know what it is. They say, what, I have melanoma? Um, But no, it is multiple myeloma, very different cancer, of course. So the first thing they want is, my God, I've never heard about this. And they want to meet other people like them. They want to understand how it is to be diagnosed, what's happening to other people, how they're dealing with their treatment. So getting together through the marches does give patients and their family the opportunity to meet other people. Get more details about the Make Myeloma Matter, the Multiple Myeloma March. Go to myeloma.ca, go to their Instagram or Facebook. Uh, Martine, your depth and knowledge of the disease, your passion, your advocacy is off the charts. What drives you to help so many people in this country with this disease and this in right now and this form of cancer? It's the community is an amazing community and it's really hard for me to express it in words, but it is a feeling of wanting to help them. 
and wanting to provide them with the information and the care that they need and advocating for them. Um, I've been working in the cancer field for 30 years, and this is probably the most tight-knit community I've met in my entire career. And I really want to give back and help them. If I may ask, what kind of feedback do you get from the families through your work? That we're there for them. Um, we pick up the phone when they call. They can talk to a person. We are a source of information, of inspiration, and of hope because we never give up. One of the things that's you know really important in cancer is hope that there's always hope there's always something that you can do to improve you know your your outcomes to look for various treatments to look for clinical trials many times patients don't know a lot about what's available to them they think about you know in their own community but you know if you're willing to travel a little bit further out you could go into a clinical trial and you can connect with other patients. So that's what we want to bring to our patient community is this sense of hope, togetherness, and that they're not alone. Uh, there's a big march taking place September 30th in Oshawa. I know Robin the Road, our very own Robin the Road, is going to be there. Also, Mississauga, Newmark, and Brampton. Get all the details, myeloma.ca. Go to Instagram and Facebook. Make a difference. And Martina Elias, an absolute pleasure to speak to you and continue great work, what you're doing for myeloma in this country. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. After the break, the teen, the books, the celebrity reviews on YouTube. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Our next guest on the feed is proof positive that the children are our future, and it sure does look rosy. William Butland is the proud host of Wild Willie's Book Reviews and has his own YouTube channel. He's 13 years old, and Willie is really good at what he does. In fact, I think he could teach a lot of us a few things about interviewing. Willie joins us now on the feed all the way from Pictou County, Nova Scotia. Welcome to the show, Willie. So I have to tell you, I was researching Carl Subban. He was my guest a couple of weeks ago on the feed. I came across this incredible chat, interview, connection between you, Wild Willie, and Carl Subban, the author of The Hockey Skates. Here's just a snippet of that. What's up, guys? Welcome back to Wild Willie's Book Reviews. Today I'm here with the fabulous Carl Subban. And if you guys didn't see my review of his book, The Hockey Skates, make sure to go check that out after. And yeah, what would you, is there anything that you want to say to introduce yourself? Yes, I just want to say to all your fans out there that uh, I've spent my life working with children and adults, young people in three worlds. Wow, Willie. So you hear that. What was the interview like for you with Carl Subban? Yeah, it was, I mean, it was really nice to meet him and it was kind of just a surreal experience to figure out that um, just something that I started a while ago, something little I never thought would turn into this, that now I'm interviewing um, famous authors, and like you said, Carol Subban, it was really nice to talk to him, and yeah. And you read the book, The Hockey Skates. I'm sure as a professional interviewer that you are, you read the books cover to cover. Yeah, for sure. It's um, Yeah, I really enjoyed that book. I think it's uh, it kind of showcases a good lesson for really anybody that reads it. So let's go back in time. How did all of this begin? Where did Wild Willie's book reviews come from? Yeah, so I kind of, my mom was an author and I kind of got my love of reading from her and I was homeschooled until grade four. So I was always at home reading for English class and stuff like that. And I really kind of just wanted to share that love of reading with really anybody that would want to come watch it. So how did you make that happen? Uh, well, I really just, like, at the start, I didn't really know what I was doing. I just thought, okay, let's do this. Let's see where it takes me. And I just picked, at that time, it was the um, first book that I really, really enjoyed, and it was the home team, uh, the Pittsburgh Penguins. And I really enjoyed that book, and I'm like, this is a good book to start with. Let's just review this and see where it takes me. And how about reaching out to the authors? Has that been challenging? Yeah, it's... um it's something that I've learned from a lot, kind of how to speak with them and how to get to be able to talk to them on Zoom, as I do for most of my interviews. And yeah, it's kind of a cool experience. You reach out and then 
I mean, a day, a week, however long it takes, you see them kind of respond and most of them are always happy to do an interview, which is really cool to see. And who could ever say no to you, Willie? <laughs> and now let me ask you this. Are there, uh, is there support from book publishers? What Do they send you books? Do, are they, do they understand what it is that you're trying to do? Yeah, for sure. And uh, a cool thing that I do is I work with a um, company that is government funded called Digitally Lit. And they kind of have connections with a bunch of publishers across Atlanta, Canada, which kind of sends me books. And then that's also how I reached out to Carl Suban or how he reached out to me, I guess. The publisher of the book kind of set that whole thing up just by sending me a message. So, yeah. And short of reading the book cover to cover, how do you prepare for each of your reviews and, and interviews? Uh, I like to take my interviews kind of more casually just to have kind of a better experience, I guess. And I just, I try and ask different questions that relate to the author more. And as far as the reviews go, I just, I love to share my opinion and what I thought of the book as far as other people might see that and think that they might like it as well. And who, above and beyond Carl Subban, we think of him as the super hockey dad of Canada, who else have you interviewed in your book reviews? Yeah, so I've interviewed some great people. I've um, went to, I've done some live on location at Read by the Sea, which is a literary fe- literary festival in River John, Nova Scotia. And there I was able to interview many people such as Lana Shoup. And yeah, I've done a lot of interviews and it's been a really cool experience. I've also been able to interview Dan Gutman, which was also really cool as well. Have you ever run out of questions while you're doing the interviews? Uh, I don't think so. I think I could go on forever. It's just more of a time limit thing. <laughs> and what about the books themselves? Do you ever come across what we call a dud where it's like, oh, snore central? Uh, I don't think that I have yet, which is kind of surprising, but all the books that I received have been very wonderful. And yeah, I've just loved reading them all. And I mean, every book has kind of a different message or kind of story that wants to be kind of explained. And I think that's a really cool part about getting all these different books. You've got an amazing set. I I encourage everybody listening right now to go to your YouTube channel and listen and look. Uh, and, And it's blurred in the background, which I've always loved. But I'm intrigued by the chair that you sit in. What is that chair? Uh, so I just, the where I interview is kind of the setup that I use for everything as far as um, just using it my free time, doing some homework. And I just, I took that and I'm like, this is a great area to do my interviews and stuff as I already have the equipment as in the camera, the mic, the chair. And it's just all in all a very comfortable spot to interview people as well. It looks like a race car chair, frankly, but I can't tell because it's a little bit blurred. (laughs) Or maybe it has a hockey team logo on it. I'm not sure. Maybe that's something to think about. (laughs) So you mentioned all of your equipment. Did you set all of that up yourself? Uh, Yeah, I had some help from my family, which are big supporters of my YouTube channel as well. Um, Like I said, my mom's an author, so she definitely supports all of this. And same with my dad. And yeah, just the help from them has been amazing as far as everything, really, not even just my YouTube channel. But yeah, it's been, it's been a cool experience. Yeah, I, could, I would absolutely agree. So what's the reaction from the other students in your school and your friends, your pals, girls and guys? What do they think of you being a YouTube channel star at 13 years of age? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's cool to see because I have just people that are in my class that I've known for a while that like to talk about it just in free time and stuff like that. And they always enjoy asking me questions about kind of how I started and stuff like that. So I think it's just really cool to see. And you are a handsome young man as well. Are are the girls in school kind of like, oh, Willie, yay? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Maybe not yet. (laughs) You're great. So... Have you interviewed your mom yet? You've mentioned a couple of times that she's an author, Sarah Butland. Have you interviewed her yet? I, I've interviewed him, or her a few times off camera just about her books as far as just asking her questions while oh, she's in the process of writing the books or while she's publishing them. But I haven't really uh, picked up the camera for that one yet. And what have you learned by interviewing authors about the process that they each go through in order to create a masterpiece, a book? 
Yeah, that's something that I find really interesting. And it's, I mean, everybody that I interview, it does it a little bit differently or has a different experience entirely. But I mean, some of the people self-publish, some of the people go through the publisher, which takes a bit of time. And yeah, I think it's a really amazing opportunity to kind of learn behind the scenes while also doing something that I really love. The other thing I feel like you're doing is you're encouraging everyone, including other young people, to read books. Yeah, for sure. That was kind of when I started the YouTube channel, I kind of just wanted to share my love of reading as well and kind of inspire other people to do the same thing. You're a 13-year-old guy. So what else do you do? I mean, I know this takes up a good deal of your time because you have to read the books in order to review them. You have to get organized. You have to chase your guests. You confirm them. You set up. You prepare. But what else happens in your life? Yeah, I enjoy playing a lot of sports, just uh, school sports and Outside of school, I really enjoy basketball and baseball. Those are kind of my two main sports. But aside from that, I just like to hang out with some friends and just have a good time. Regular guy stuff <laughs> and gal stuff. <laughs> what What do you want to do with this? So this is a great experience for you, and I see it happening in, in, in the future and continuing and growing. What's your ultimate goal, Willie? Uh, that's something that I haven't really think about a final goal. I'm just trying to take it kind of day at a time, I guess, but it would be really cool to maybe like partner with a publisher or something and yeah, just see what happens, I guess. Let's you and I share with each other what our favorite books are. What is your favorite book so far? That's that's a hard one because I've had a lot and I've had a lot sent to me which were really good and there's also series that I really really enjoy but um, as of right now I'm reading a spy school um, book it's part of a series and it's uh, as of right now it's unreleased so that's kind of a it's a good book and I really enjoy it so I'd say I go with that for right now and for me it's To Kill a Mockingbird and that's an old book I believe it was published in in 1962 probably before your mother was even born <laughs> uh, but it's 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 a classic and I encourage you to take a look at it when you have the chance it's by Harper Lee and it's called To Kill a Mockingbird and it's it's just it's absolutely incredible that read so it keeps me I refer to it about once every year or so I go back and I read it and I see things Things that I didn't see the first time around or the second time around, which I find interesting. So here's my chance to ask you this final question. What's your message to other young people from coast to coast to coast when it comes to reading and, and understanding the importance of the written word? I'd say just not even with reading, just for really anything, is don't be scared to do stuff that you're uncomfortable with, just to kind of get it out there and go do it really the the hardest part is starting is uh, kind of the message that I would have and just to try anything that you want to do how can people get in touch with you if they want to how do they find your YouTube channel tell us more yeah so my YouTube channel is wild Willie's book reviews and Willie's with an IE instead of a Y and my Twitter is Willie's book or at Willie's book, I guess. And yeah, if you have any questions, feel free to at me and reach out and I'll try my best to get back to you guys. Mm. William Butland, Wild Willie, what a pleasure. I hope that we will connect again very soon. And hello to your mom. She's just been terrific through this process. Thank you so much, Willie. Yeah, no worries. Thank you guys so much for this amazing opportunity. New research next about how professionals are finding happiness at work. Tina Cortez with the good news. Monday marks the beginning of International Week of Happiness at Work. With new research on how professionals are feeling about their jobs is Tara Perry, Director at Robert Half Global Talent Solutions. Tara, welcome to the feed. Thanks so much for having me, Tina. Happy to be here. Excellent. So what is driving workplace happiness at this point? It's a great question. And, and I'd say one of the biggest drivers um, is actually people feeling like their work is interesting, meaningful, valued, makes an impact. You know, it's that their work matters. That's one absolutely the top of the list 
46% of people, in fact, say that that's the number one reason they're happy at work. Now, there was a time post-pandemic that saw many leaving their job. Has that now changed? Yes and no. I mean, the big surge of change uh, has abated, and we're definitely seeing things slow down. The frantic pace of hiring has definitely changed. But there are still people who are very mindful of how does their work integrate with their life and are they happy at work? And there, there are still people who are looking to make a change. And with the labor market in Canada being what it is, um, it, candidates, employees have options. And so there is still a lot of change happening, but just definitely not at the pace that we saw in 2021-22. You mentioned about how the workplace and jobs integrating with our lives. Do flexible work options then, are they a priority? They definitely are. Uh, They're number two on the factors Mm. list of what makes people happy at work. But I think what people need to think about, what employers and employees need to think about, is that flexibility doesn't necessarily mean remote work or hybrid work. Flexibility can mean different things to different people. You know, for myself, having a job that allows me to walk my kids to school a couple of days a week, that's the flexibility I need, even if it means I'm in the office five days a week. Just knowing I can have that time with my kids is really important. For someone else, flexibility might mean that they can go live in Costa Rica for six weeks a year and work from there. Uh, So flexibility means different things to different people. And I think it's important for employers to think about that and, and what does it mean for their employees. And is that something new for employers to think about? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. We we all remember the times pre-COVID where it was uh, more a given that you were in the office five days a week, Monday to Friday, and it was an exception to the rule if you had a job that allowed flexibility or remote work options. Employers are at a point now where they realize they can no longer just dictate the terms of employment to a an employee, but at the same time, employees can't expect employers to bend over backwards for everybody all of the time. So we've kind of come to a mutual respect, a place of mutual respect and understanding, I think. Well, that sounds like a good place. So what does the research reveal about workload or burnout and how are employers dealing with burnout? Well, uh, separate research from our happiness research shows that close to 40% of Canadian professionals still are feeling burned out, and that's primarily due to heavy workloads. Uh, And I think uh, a lot of it comes down to um, do people feel like that work matters? If you're working a lot and you're wondering to what end, that's when burnout really starts to come into play. But if employers are recognizing employees, if there's open dialogue about opportunities for growth and personal development, if there's a respect and understanding of the amount of work people are doing, and so you know, having a half day every now and then is reasonable, then that burnout becomes less of an issue because people are still happy about where they work even if they are feeling tired. And finding that balance seems key to having employers keep that top talent, keeping them involved, engaged, and recognized as well. 100%. I I like to think of it as creating a, a culture of trust where employers trust that their employees are doing the work, getting the work done, and are performing at a high level But conversely, employees trust that their employer is looking out for them and understands and recognizes how hard they're working. You know, we also have research that suggests uh, 70% of employers or employees, excuse me, want to do well at work. They want to be successful. They want to be engaged. And so, you know, recognizing how hard people work and acknowledging it and, um, 
understanding that people genuinely want what's best for their organizations, it just fosters that sense of trust and and therefore fulfillment and engagement and teamwork and camaraderie and all of the positives that come along with it. So what specifically can employers do to recognize good work, to foster that employment or that environment of trust? You know, one of the biggest things, we call them stay interviews. Sometimes they can be called a job interview, but when was the last time you as a manager asked your staff, what motivates you to come into work? What gets you out of bed in the morning to want to be here? What do you like about your job? What do you not like about your job? We perform all of these interviews when we hire someone, and we perform exit interviews when somebody leaves, but when was the last time you actually interviewed your employees to find out what keeps them engaged so that you at least know what their motivation is and can help foster and develop that? I think that's one of the biggest factors. Uh, The research also shows that uh, creating really comprehensive professional development plans is important. Uh, Sharing a corporate vision um, and allowing employees to have input on that corporate vision is really important. Um, Reinforcing the value and the importance of somebody's work. And again, flexibility, that, that famous word these days, flexibility is a big one. Going back to your comment about stay interviews, what kinds of questions would an employer ask for a stay interview? There, there's some great questions uh, you can find online. You can find it through our, our blog on roberthalf.ca. Uh, there's some good questions around stay interviews. One of my favorites to ask is what gets you out of bed in the morning to want to come to work? Or, and what keeps you here? When you go home at the end of the day, if somebody asked you how was your day, what makes you say it was a good day today? What, what puts that smile on your face? I find those are really uh, meaningful and impactful qu- questions. You get really great answers from it. Uh, other great questions to ask are things like, if you could change one thing about your job, what would it be? Or what's the 20% of your job that you don't love? Because uh, that's going to change for everybody. And, and again, it just comes back to knowing and understanding and creating an environment where that dialogue is open and there's mutual respect in it. Tara, thank you so much for this dialogue today. If our listeners want more information on this research on Robert Half, where can they find it? Uh, it's all on our website, roberthalf.ca. There are, it's a great resource for both employees and employers. Uh, We cover all kinds of ground around interview questions, how to create flexible work environments, creating trust in the workspace. It can all be found there. Excellent. Thanks for your time today. No, thank you for having us. Happy to talk about it. If you missed any part of the feed, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you so much for listening.